I think in the 2020s, the industry is going to cover the equivalent amount of ground that we covered in the previous 30 years. You know, call it from 1980 to、uh, 2010. I think we'll cover that in the, in the 2020s. I can't really get a very clear picture of what things are going to look like, but I am pretty clear that they're going to look different. And in changes, opportunity. There's an awful lot of things that can be significantly disruptive in the long term to the industry. One thing that's an absolute: there's never going to be fewer electronic components used than there is today. Connect, influence, optimize. You're listening to the Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA. The Electronic Component Industry Association, working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to this episode of the Channel Channel ECIA's podcast. I'm joined today by our guest Michael Knight. Michael is the president of TTI Semiconductor Group, as well as senior vice president of corporate business development at TTI and. Mike, we're thrilled to have you on the show.、Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to have the opportunity. Well, let's get into it. We start every episode by asking our guest for their favorite word. So, what is your favorite word, Michael? My favorite word, I would have to say, is、um, exponential. Exponential. I like that. That's a new one.、Uh, Tell us more. I think it's a word that pretty much captures what's driving our industry. Probably what's driving. Humanity going forward, and it's this whole idea of technology advancement being exponential. I think this is a very exciting time coming into the 2020s because I feel like we're starting to enter the back half of the exponential curve. If you can picture a typical exponential curve, the first half actually looks and feels somewhat linear, and it's when you get to the back half, the hockey sticks up, where the pace of change becomes very dramatic. And for lots of different reasons, lots of different technologies, I think we're entering an exponential time. I'm certain I'm going to see it in my lifetime. So I think、uh, exponential is maybe the one word that's key to understanding where we're at, what's coming, and with that understanding, probably key to capitalizing on、uh, the opportunities it's going to present. So this promises to be some ex- exciting times. I'm really anxious to get into some of that with you.、Uh, but before we do, t- tell us just briefly. For the listeners that kind of that they know you, you know, speaking and writing about the industry、uh, at different events, but may not know who you are in terms of some of your background and stuff. How, how did you get into the industry and end up with this role at TTI? Like probably all the best stories, there's a lot of luck in it. I was a biochemist by training, a minor in computer science, and I grew up on the East Coast. And all the action for biochemistry and genetics and things was in California. So. As soon as I got out of college, I headed west. Once I got there, looking around for something to do, got a job with an IT department, early、uh, semiconductor specialty distributor by the name of Western Micro Technology. It was there that I was first exposed to electronic components. I was exposed to distribution, and that set me on the path to ultimately TTI. In the course of that path, I've worked for component manufacturers about half the time, startup to very large publicly traded companies. I've worked for local regional distributors like Western Micro, a company called PSD Electronics was another one. Spent some time in the rep business. I've been in general management. I've had global sales and marketing responsibility. So I've actually had an opportunity to be involved in every aspect of the industry, both as a manufacturer 
And on the sale side in the channel, as an original component manufacturer, I did a startup back in the late 90s in the semiconductor arena and semiconductor packaging. It was high, very high speed, you know, electrically and thermally enhanced bulgur array and chip scale packaging. And we built a factory in China. So it's been a pretty amazing industry for me in terms of being able to see the world, learn a lot, meet a lot of really cool people over the years, some of whom have gone on to become household names in the tech industry. Because a big chunk of my early years, as I said, was on the West Coast, specifically in Silicon Valley. And here I am today at TTI, which actually I met TTI in the late 90s when a company I was running sales and marketing for, we hired TTI as a distributor. I have a two-year pursuit, a real feather in the company's cap to engage with TTI. So I've known TTI from a point where I think then it was maybe... 250, 300 million, and today we're touching 6 billion. So that also has been a blast just watching that. Honestly, it's a picture-perfect career. Obviously, it would have been cool if millions of dollars had stuck to me on along the way, but uh, there's still time. But it's it's been a lot of fun. That sounds very interesting, and giving you those experiences, certainly some great insights and perspectives on the industry from multiple angles, and I'm sure that's led into why you're sought after so much to talk about what's going on in the industry. So what do you see today as the major things driving the component market? You have your, what's become kind of uh, tried and true trends, which is shrinking size, shrinking price, you know, everything getting smaller, margins getting smaller, et cetera. And those, you know, those aren't going to back off anytime soon. That's been uh, consistent now for uh, some time. Um, And it's component manufacturers and resellers of components. We're all having to deal with that. You know, it's progressively more expensive to do R&D, to bring new products to market, progressively more expensive to sell products to market. You know, margins are shrinking. It's the yin and yang of electronic components. On the one hand, that enables this massive proliferation of components that we see in all aspects of our life because as the price points come down, especially today in things like sensors, it gets ever more economical to bring electronics into something that had primarily only been mechanical. Think like a toothbrush. My guess is the vast majority of us, quite a few of us these days use an electronic toothbrush as opposed to an old mechanical toothbrush. So that trend is alive and well. From a, a market standpoint, what we're seeing is a couple of things that for 19, that I think are going to start to shift a bit in the 2020s. But for us, we've had an amazing one for quite a while in the defense electronics space. And for those well-positioned in defense electronics, they probably outperformed the industry in in 2019. And I don't think that's going to slow down. Aerospace, which has also been a great driver of the industry, may slow down, probably is going to slow down here pretty quickly because of all the Boeing issues. But um, on the front side, I guess, of every uh, downward slide is an upward trend. And I do think that there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand for aircraft. And whether it's Boeing or somebody else, these planes are going to have to get built. So I think there's going to be a big catch-up, which we're going to have to watch the timing on that. Because when it happens, it'll be quick, and it's going to soak up a lot of capacity. So it may free up some capacity in the near term as the number of planes that gets built drops. But there will be a catch-up because what's inevitable is we need more planes. People are becoming more mobile over time. More and more people are going to be able to afford to travel. That's a kind of an indisputable trend, in my opinion. Overall, the the big thing is that the world's becoming more connected and there's a lot of really cool stuff that's going to happen in the 2020s around that whole concept. 
you can imagine a worldwide human network where every single person on the planet, all 7.2 billion of us are connected to the internet, it's almost not possible to imagine what that leads to in terms of new business development, new idea creation, technology innovation, and ultimately a demand for electronic components. So coming off this kind of mixed year in, in 2019, um, before we get into more, more of the futures in a little deeper way, what, how is TTI planning for 2021? We actually believe that the industry is going to do a little bit better than what looks like consensus at the moment. When I uh, take into account everything that I'm hearing from the whole electronic component ecosystem, most people think the industry is going to grow maybe two and a half to three and a half percent, something low single digits. I think it's going to do better than that. I don't think it's going to be obvious in the first half of the year, but I think it will be very obvious in the second half of the year. We could talk about more about why I think that. We're planning for overall something like six to seven percent. So that'll involve us taking a little bit of share, which I think we'll do because I do believe in an up cycle. Second half of the year, we're going to start moving into another bit of an up cycle. It's going to last for a couple of years. But going into up cycles, TTI does pretty well, better than average. So that's our plan. And it's a pretty diverse portfolio these days. We've got Mauser, Sager, and Power, which is doing extremely well in that space got our core business, which is IP&E, you know, Interconnect Passive and Electromechanical, and then this fledgling semiconductor group that uh, I'm running. So we have pretty much the entire component landscape covered, so we're participating in all pieces of it. And quite frankly, I feel uh, very good about our prospects in 2020 for all elements of it. So we're looking forward to this year. Tell us more about what's behind your kind of second half prediction for Stronger Rebound. It's a couple things. There's some leading indicators that are pretty reliable that suggest that the down point in this cycle occurred late Q4, early part of Q1. And so when you time these things out, which is things like uh, U.S. industrial production and industrial production for various countries and things like that, uh, and you start seeing that it points to an uptick in a lot of areas in the second half of the year. Plus, specifically, so 5G is here at last. You know, it's about 12 to 18 months late in terms of its pace. And this is typical, right? We always tend to be overly optimistic about when new things are going to arrive and ramp and overly pessimistic in terms of what the total impact on those new things are going to be when they get here. And 5G is uh, no different. So we were overly optimistic about the ramp. The ramp is here. We saw a lot of it in 2019. It was actually a pretty significant driver of our business in 2019. And in the year just passed, TTI actually had an up year, not a 2018 kind of up, but an up year nonetheless. And 5G had a lot to do with it. Defense electronics, of course, had a lot to do with it as well. But 5G is here. That's going five, to be 5G, you're talking primarily infrastructure still at this point or handsets so contributing? It, it was a good question. For 2019, first half of 2020, it's largely infrastructure. I see the mobile side of it start to kick in in the second half. And I think that's something to watch because, um, as you may or may not know, for the last couple of years, mobile handset production rates have been down. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of which is, I mean, I don't know about you, but 
I'm using a, a two-year-old phone right now because there's no point in replacing it because in the second half of the year, probably not the second half of the year, but say 2021, I will able be able to start tapping into 5G and I'm going to want a 5G handset. So I think in the second half, you're going to see 5G handsets kick in. That's going to start to lift mobile handset production numbers, which is going to soak up a lot of components. The infrastructure stuff will continue. And though it's not 5G, um, it is high-speed communications in that all this uh, satellite build-out, all this low-Earth uh, satellite stuff that folks like SpaceX are doing is starting to pick up speed as well. That, too, is a big driver of our business. In particular, in the semiconductor group, we have a company called RFMW that focuses on the RF and microwave space, and they have a very big footprint in the satellites. So every time uh, SpaceX sends another 60 satellites up into space, we high five. Big day for us. So those things are going to start to pick up in the second half of 2020. The other thing that I see happening is I think in the second half of 2020, this whole smart home, smart city, it's part of the whole IoT world, right? I think that is going to really start to pick up speed. It's not that it's small now. But it's been very fragmented. You have competing standards, you know, Z-Wave, Zigbee. You've got all the wireless technologies, everything from, you know, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth to extended range stuff. You have now all the low power wide area stuff like LoRa starting to come in. But within the home, the interconnectedness of all these devices, there's a couple of different standards. And what was just announced recently is a consortium of all the big players, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, et cetera getting together to create an industry standard so that everybody's product is interoperable. So I think that's going to be a big deal as well, because quite frankly, a lot of stuff that's deployed today may end up being obsoleted by the new standard. So that's going to drive a wave of replacement. But more importantly, I think it's going to drive a wave of adoption rates that we haven't seen yet. When you think about how connected and how smart your own home is, you know, and I'll use my own home as an example. My home is actually pretty stupid. It, it's for a couple of reasons. Feeling is that the technology isn't yet fully baked, and this is a piece of it. And it just felt a little too early. And believe it or not, I'm not an early adopter. Oh, uh, no. No, Say yeah. the truth. <laughs> yeah. I, and the reason is because I think all the stuff that early adopters buy goes into landfill. <laughs> um, so what I like to do is give things a year or two to flesh out. And I think that's where we're at on the smart home stuff. I think you're going to see a lot of stuff going on in the smart home. The smart city movement is real. You're going to see a lot of build out there. So, and it just, it goes on and on. There's a lot of stuff that's starting to hit its stride right now that is going to carry us in the second half and then going into 2021. Personally, I think most of the 20s are going to be very strong for the industry. I think we're going to have another really strong upward wave. Not to say that we're not going to have some dips and there's not going to be some shocks in that because we are living in a bigger, more turbulent economic environment. But generally, when we look back on the 2020s, I think you're going to see some pretty uh, significant compound annual growth rates for our industry. So what are some of these headwinds that we might run into along the way that cause some bumpiness on this growth path? Well, you know, there's the obvious stuff, you know, the geopolitical instability, trends towards nationalism. There's the big picture stuff that uh, makes up all the news. But there's also some 
I think some more subtle things, you know, a, a lot of what we're talking about here involves changes in standards. It in, there's a lot of privacy issues that tie into all of this, especially with a smart home. I mean, quite, quite frankly, I have a smart workshop because that's my domain. I get to make all the decisions in that little you know, 30 by 30 space. And in there, I've got a Sonos Alexa speaker that I talk to and it gives me information. I've got all kinds of stuff. I don't have any in the house. And part of it is privacy concerns, you know, that stuff's listening in. So that's one of the things I think that's actually been slowing down the pace of adoption that's going to have to get addressed. And I don't know who said this, but when I heard it, it really stuck with me. It's one of the things that we have to reconcile, which is this idea of you can have either perfect security or perfect privacy. You can't have both. Something has to give. In order to have perfect privacy, you have to give up, or rather perfect security, you have to give up a lot of privacy or vice versa. So things like blockchain and there's a lot of stuff going on in the security world, you know, especially as it relates to cybersecurity. Because, you know, quite frankly, what we're living in today is, I'd say it's more cyber insecurity, right? And that's got to get dealt with because that will slow things down. It's one of the things that I'm concerned about is electronics moves more and more into our lives. It controls more and more of the things around us. It influences us, makes decisions for us. You know, all the AIs that we interact with. I think that we've got to get on top of this and that involves regulation. You know, it's one of the principal roles of government. And I'm concerned that governments, not just ours, but around the world are ill-equipped to deal with this because again, it's exponential. It's coming very fast and it's getting ahead of our ability to understand it, to put uh, guidelines and guardrails around it. And, you know, that's concerning. When you think about it, Really what we've done today is we're letting the tech community decide this stuff because government can't keep up with it. And you know, one of the reasons government can't keep up with it, and I, I talk about this in some of the talks that I do, is you know, the three big institutions in our lives, government, religion, and education, all predate technology. Uh, and those structures haven't changed much. So I think it's no surprise that they don't deal well with it. Um, and you have things like autonomous driving, and it's in the news quite a bit. Government has a role to play for that to actually truly arrive. Without government involvement, it's going to be complete chaos. So those are the big headwinds, I think, to this. But none of it's insurmountable. I think it's all solvable. And is the industry ready for these various growth drivers you talked about? Are there any more, you, you know, that, what's the next big shortage that we're going to see, if, if any? I don't think so. What we experienced in 2018 was a situation where demand exceeded capacity. Actually, it started, uh, the first signs that we saw of it were actually mid-late 2016. And adding capacity takes time, it takes money. Is this a good return on investment to add capacity for commodity capacitors and resistors, as a, for instance? So what we saw was a spike in the market in 2018 that led to an inventory build and a couple of other things. And I should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about 2019, one of, you know, one of the big parts of the 2019 story was an inventory correction from the build that came yeah. off the demand in 2018. I think that's largely behind us. You know, it's not even. There's some places where 
Uh, there's still inventory to be worked off and there's other places where too much inventory is probably being worked off, but I don't think that's going to be much of a story in 2020. So some capacity was added. Things cooled down. Lead times have come down. Pricing has normalized uh, and actually started to retreat. We've seen ASP erosion, quite a bit of it, in fact, in 2019. So to your question, what's the likelihood of another component shock? How robust is the supply chain? And I'll tell you, I don't think it's robust enough for people to be comfortable. So the things that I was talking about are going to soak up a lot of components. And I believe, once again, the first signs of trouble are going to happen in commodity components, the low ASP, low margin stuff. I mean, it might be high CV ceramics. We're already starting to see some signs of it in resistors, power semis, you know, things like FETs. Lead times never did fully retreat. There are parts of that that have remained tight even through 2019. And I think we'll get tighter yet. So this is a, just a personal prediction. But I, I believe sometime in the second half of the year, you're going to see lead times start to push out and things to get tight in some areas. And if 2021 develops as I expect, I think it'll become more widespread. So the balance between supply and demand is a very precarious thing and has been for a while. And part of this relates back to the margin situation we started talking about. With constant and continuous cost downs on things, margins have got pushed on a lot of components to the point where it's perhaps not economical to invest in additional capacity. You know, if you're having trouble making money with your existing capacity, why would you spend any of your cash to make more of those parts? So that's what has to get worked out. I think what we experienced in 2018, in the next couple of years, we're going to have another one of those is, uh, is, is my prediction. So if we start to look a little deeper into this new decade we're in, what do you see, you know, kind of the, in the mid-20s and the later part of the decade that are going to affect our industry and drive our growth and things to be on the lookout for? I think about this a lot, and it's actually a very frustrating topic for me because, uh, first of all, I'm very certain that five years from now, things are going to look quite a bit different than they do today. And the reason for that is if I think back in where we were 10 years ago, it would have been difficult to imagine today from 10 years ago. Um, uh, you put the exponential on top. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, Back and to your word. I think in the 2020s, the industry is going to cover the equivalent amount of ground that we covered in the previous 30 years. You know, call it from 1980 to uh, 2010. I think we'll cover that in the, in the 2020s. I can't really get a very clear picture of what things are going to look like, but I am pretty clear that they're going to look different. And in change is opportunity. There's an awful lot of things that can be significantly disruptive in the long term to the industry. One thing that's an absolute, there's never going to be fewer electronic components used than there is today. The demand is going to continue to go up. Even in 2019, where we saw an overall drop in value of a lot of electronic component types, unit production for many of those went up. So that what went down, obviously, was ASPs went down faster than unit production went up. So I'm quite certain that the electronic components industry is, uh, the best days are still ahead of it. How it gets sold, you know, as a distributor, of course, I worry about that. How that gets disrupted, 
And when you look around, there's disruption everywhere. And it's tech-based disruption, right? And you see the disruption in retail, you know, all of that is uh, pretty well understood. So for those of us in the component supply chain, if we were to think that our business models of the last 30 or 40 years, or even, so let's talk about TTI specifically. This is a company founded in 1971. We have a, you know, a very uh, robust business model. If we think that we're gonna be able to employ that model with no tweaks, no changes, basically as is for the next however many number of years, I think that's dangerous. I circle back on point on this. What frustrates me is I know there are disruptors out there. I know we are going to get disrupted. Every element of the supply chain is going to get disrupted. I just can't bring it into focus. You know, it's, uh, yeah. But it's going to be tech-based. It's likely to involve things like uh, robotic process automation and AI. We're already seeing a growing trend towards customers who want to uh, interface computer to computer. We're using APIs to transmit data back and forth and basically take people out of the equation for basic purchasing requirements. So when it's computer to computer, obviously your ability to influence the decision goes right out the window. There's no personal interaction. So that is one thing that I do think for certain is going to factor in to whatever this future state uh, looks like. I think we're going to see more and more of that where uh, for the history of selling, and I, I've got a really cool infographic on this, it takes the uh, history of selling back to 9,000 BC. And it shows the evolution of selling technology and process. And largely it's been personal. It's a contact sport, right? In the future, I'm not so certain it is as much of a contact sport. So that's got ramifications uh, for all of us. Component suppliers, how they go to market, for those of us in distribution, the folks in the rep community, et cetera. What do you think ECIA as an association can do better to try to be in front of some of these disruptions and keep up with this exponential curve we're hitting? Man, that's a, that's a $64,000 question. <laughs> One of the things where, honestly, I think our industry is very deficient is in data. So you know, think about this. Our industry is the enabler of big data. We supply all the parts that go into all the computers, behind all the storage, behind the cloud, where all this data is collected and processed and analyzed. And we're in a situation today where you can't go to one place and get an answer on how big this industry is. You can get bits and pieces of it. You can get some pretty good data on semiconductors, um, you know, different parts of the world, different uh, parts of the semiconductor industry. You can get some data on connectors, not super granular, but you can't get it all in one place. And I'm reminded of this constantly because people reach out to me all the time trying to get a feel for how big this industry is. And just recently, I was talking to an economist who's going to speak in an industry event who was looking for some data. And there's just no one source. Why I bring that up is I do think that that is a, a primary deliverable for an industry association. And I think it's one of the things that, and I, by the way, I know I haven't been deeply involved with the ECIA for years, that it's always been at the top of the list of things to do. And there's a long story of why it doesn't exist today. Mm -hmm. But the punchline is, 
It doesn't exist. It needs to exist. And it would be very helpful if it did in terms of enabling and getting out in front, helping people make better decisions about what to invest in, when to invest. You know, we're, we're living in a data-driven world and we don't have a lot of data about our own industry. For years and years and years, that's just, that has me shaking my head. So that would be good. Yep. Uh, the other, other thing, though, maybe a little closer to home for the association is what I described is some fundamental changes in the component supply, uh, potentially going to drive fundamental changes in the component supply ecosystem. And, and I, I really believe that. And there's going to be a lot to navigate there. And one of the other things that associations typically do is they help navigate stuff for the industry at uh, the government level, you know, a regulation level. You know, they have a presence to help with uh, legislation, provide advice and input to lawmakers who are working on things like what new rules do we need for autonomous driving, for instance. And I think an industry association has a big role to play there as well as an advisor to government to help make, you know, good decisions to create an environment that's good for all of us. That's going to become ever more important as because of this whole exponential thing. Things are right. changing faster and faster. I'm sorry for the long answer, but it's a, nope. it's a so complicated helpful. topic. Yeah, I struggle with it constantly. So like every year, we, we kicked off January with CES, a huge show in Vegas, and I'm sure you were walking the halls a bit. What, what were some of your takeaways from CES this year? First and foremost, a lot of the stuff that I saw last year that felt half-baked was more fully baked, if not completely baked. This year is pretty amazing. It really has become overwhelming as you, uh, as you wander around, but so a couple of things, everything's connected. So this whole, the, the IoT, wireless connectivity, it's everywhere. Every single hall, every single display, it truly is everywhere. So I saw a lot of really cool new ways that connectivity is being deployed. Saw a ton of wearables, you know, that companies I've never heard of doing really cool stuff. A lot of it Looks like a knockoff on Apple or Garmin or Fitbit, but there was some unique stuff in there too. But the big takeaway is that technology is being deployed in everything. So I saw a smart pillow that monitors your breathing. And if it hears you start to snore, you know, sound of a sleep apnea, it gives you a little pulse to get you to move, to break up that pattern. So you know, the, the idea behind the pillow is you don't need a CPAP machine. The pillow using sensors and some haptics would cure you of that. And it goes on and on and on. So if you want to go get a look at the, you know, what the near-term future looks like, that's a great place to go because, you know, year on year, you get to see trends, you know, something that maybe there was only one or two people bringing to the show a couple years ago. Now there's a hundred people that in the stands convention center where all the smart home stuff was, that was unbelievable. I mean, the smart locks, the smart faucets, the smart toilets, the smart mirrors, the smart everything. It does have me wondering though, a lot of this stuff at this point is uh, nice to have, 
as opposed to need to have. So as long as the consumer is doing well, and of course here in the US, that's a big piece of what's driving the, uh, the current strong economy is consumer confidence. The nice to have stuff, that's compelling. But in a dip, the nice to have dries up and it's just the need to have that. Right. And a lot of the stuff at CES, I would put is a nice to have, not a need to have. Sure. So I think that's kind of interesting. And then the other thing is, it's kind of mind boggling to think about where all the money that's flowing into tech, every one of these companies there, if it's an early stage, they got funding from someplace and they put together product, they've spent money to go to CES and show it. Presumably it's getting ready to manufacture if they're not already manufacturing. It's just wild. Yeah. You know, it's an ocean of electronics and uh, underneath it all, Electronic components. Yep. That's, I mean, I, I don't know. You, as, you, as you walked around, uh, it'd be interesting to kind of do an estimate on the value of the electronic components just at CES. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, it had to be in the billions. Yeah. You know, and all the and just in the demo stuff and everything that they that people brought to Las Vegas. It's wild. Incredible. Yeah. 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 Well, Michael, as, as always enjoy and appreciate an opportunity to hear you speak. You get great insights and, uh, into our business and, uh, you know, we'd love to have you come back on a regular basis to share your thoughts. So uh, we appreciate all you do for the industry and for the association and best of luck with you at TTI. And thanks again for being on our show today. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Bill. Terrific. <laughs>